What moved thousands of souls to be saved and the early followers of Jesus to be so devoted to godly habits? It was more than just a knowledge of God. It was a holy fear of God. The Holy Spirit of God indwells believers with a holy fear of God that not only compels missional movement, but empowers it. My name is Christopher Campbell. I'm the pastor of Southside Baptist Church in Decatur, Alabama. This sermon is from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, and it's called Power in the Fearing. I pray that God would give you eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to obey His Word. Fear is a powerful motivation for movement. Fear compels people to move in ways that otherwise were thought to be impossible. If you doubt this, then go to the beach and watch what happens when someone yells, Shark! And fear comes upon all who are in the water and they move through the water with movement never seen before. The church of Jesus Christ needs a holy fear of God. Not the kind of fear that paralyzes, like stage fright. And not the kind of fear that moves someone to attack or flee, as in the fight or flight response. The church of Jesus Christ needs a holy fear of God that comes from God, that not only compels movement, but empowers it. This was the kind of fear that verse 43 says came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. I want to talk to you this morning about power in the fearing. The early church received power from on high and it moved them with a holy fear of God into the mission of God and all the world. Now, Acts records for us that before Jesus was taken up into heaven, just as he promised, the Spirit of God, the power from on high, was poured out on Jesus' followers on the day of Pentecost. That day is described in the beginning of Acts chapter 2, if you look at it with me, with these words. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all feared, filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now Pentecost is a feast that takes place 50 days after the Passover. And during these 50 days, the followers of Jesus are still together, waiting. And as they wait, a sound from heaven, like a mighty rushing wind, comes and fills the entire house and fills them. It is the Holy Spirit of God, the promise of the Father, the power and presence of Jesus, just as Jesus had promised. And when the Holy Spirit came that day, language barriers were broken down and the message of Jesus was being heard by men from every nation under heaven in their own language. 
Now, it's very important for me to take you back to Genesis chapter 11. You don't have to turn there, but in Genesis chapter 11, there is the account of what's called the Tower of Babel. The events of the Tower of Babel here on this first Pentecost are beginning to be reversed. Human beings created in the image of God can accomplish impossible feats when united together as one. The Tower of Babel was a tower built at a time when the whole earth had one language. And so the people got together and said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The people attempted to make a name for themselves and build a tower to the heavens, and by doing so, attempted to set themselves in the place of God. But Genesis says the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there, confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. At the Tower of Babel, God graciously confused the languages of the people on earth so that they would not destroy themselves with their united ability and pride. God had a better unity in store, a unity that he would give to his people, a uniting of his people one day by his spirit and with his power. And just imagine the possibilities of God's people united by God's spirit and what they can do. It's a foreshadowing of the church, of Jesus Christ, a foreshadowing of the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, and a foreshadowing of the worship of God that will take place as Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 describes, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, worshiping God. And so this begins on the very first Pentecost as the Holy Spirit is poured out on the followers of Jesus and in the midst of much bewilderment and amazement and astonishment that all these people from all these different places can now hear the message and the testimony of Jesus in their own language. Peter stands among the other apostles and begins to preach and explain what is happening to them. And what did Peter preach? He did not preach that humanity could band together and reach up to God in the heavens. But instead, he preached that humanity could be united together by a God who came down from heaven to humanity. Peter preached very clearly Jesus, who was crucified, who was raised to life and is exalted at the right hand of the Father in power. And he says that all the things that the people were experiencing, it was the promise of the Father provided for by the person and work of this Jesus. 
Acts chapter 2, verse 41 says, So they, those who received his word, were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's powerful preaching. It's a powerful God. That about 3,000 souls were saved that day as God became known through his word and through his spirit. So what moved these 3,000 people to salvation? I want to suggest that Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47 answers that question by saying it was a holy fear of God. Listen to this. The more God is known, the more we know of God through the revelation of His Word and His Spirit, the more God is feared. And fear empowers God's people to move on mission with Jesus. The fear of God is a motivator for movement. We need a healthy fear of God. We need God to shock us all awake. To remind us of the power of His presence given for His church. This fear of God first propelled the followers of Jesus into an unnatural devotion to the things of God. And this healthy fear of God will propel us into that same type of devotion today. Look with me at verse 42. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Four actions are listed that the followers of Jesus devoted themselves to. Now that word devotion is used twice in these six verses, and it is a word that means to continue to do something with intense effort, with the possible implication of despite difficulty. It's a perseverance. The early believers were not swayed from doing these four things by anything. And the first item of devotion was to the apostles' teaching, verse 42. The apostles' teaching is the testimony of Jesus, the word of their witness. What the apostles themselves saw with their own eyes and heard with their own ears, having walked with Jesus as he walked the earth. This is what the apostles taught, and this is what is preserved for us in the Holy Scriptures. And this is what the Gospels record, what the epistles, the letters of the New Testament expound, and what all the Bible from Genesis to Revelation says amen to about God's salvation in Jesus Christ. This is the teaching that we devote our attention to as well. Now, all believers are witnesses, but not all believers are apostles. That word apostle has its root in the shipping industry. Uh, to speak of what was sent out, a bill of lading, to record what was uh, on that ship to be delivered. It became used in New Testament times to speak of those who were sent out as ambassadors or envoys on a specific mission. That's who the apostles were. They were men specifically appointed and commissioned by Jesus as eyewitnesses to his teaching and works for the specific assignment of testifying to all people 
of the truth of Jesus, which they had personally seen and heard. So first, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Secondly, according to verse 42, the believers were devoted to the fellowship. That's the word koinonia. It describes a closeness and a communion. It was a word that was used of marriage relationships as being the most intimate fellowship between human beings, koinonia. In Jesus, there is koinonia, a fellowship, a close communion, one with another. And verse 42 elaborates on that fellowship. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, and here it is, to the breaking of bread. Now, the breaking of bread is a figure of speech for eating together, sharing a meal. There's a special closeness and uniting and relationship that develops in partaking of a meal together. Even if there is no common ground between the parties eating, you at least share common food at the table. And so it's a powerful image of unity. This table fellowship in the New Testament time included things like discussions around the table and even lectures. There was teaching at the table. The devotion to the apostles' teaching and the prayers was lived out over meals, to which all Baptists say amen. <laughs> Worship happened at table. The devotion happened at table. A family meal today is a very practical way of enjoying fellowship where devotion to God may be lived out. Think of it as the family gathers together to share a meal, it provides a natural opportunity for prayer, for eating, for teaching, and for the worship of God. I have young children, and so it makes it very hard sometimes to get everybody together and focus all on the same thing. But most of the time, we can accomplish that at the table, at a meal. When we were in El Dorado, we were invited to share a meal with a family in our church. Before we ate, they did something that had become a special habit for that family. We all gathered around and, and standing in a room. And one of the sons in that family explained that they had a habit in their family of reading a passage of scripture before eating their meal. And this was a way of reminding them and their guests that in the eating of the food that had been prepared for us, we should have a tangible reminder of what Jesus taught when he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now that's creativity, that is worship, that is teaching at table. But there's a deeper meaning here. And using that phrase, the breaking of bread, it intentionally connects us as hearers with what Jesus did with his disciples at Passover in the upper room before his suffering and death. Luke chapter 22 and verse 19 says, and he, being Jesus, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to them and saying, this is my body which is broken for you which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The breaking of bread in verse 42 is an intentional reference to the Lord's Supper. The meal that believers devoted themselves to 
and that united them together was not just an ordinary meal, but specifically the Lord's Supper, which they were to eat often. They would even tack it on to the end of their ordinary meal. It reminded them of Jesus' body being broken for them on the cross so that God might forgive our sins through Jesus. And that meal of remembrance unites fellow believers together on the same basis of forgiveness of sins. My sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And what unites us together at that table is what Jesus has done for us. Verse 42 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now Jesus taught Luke chapter 18 and verse 1 that his followers ought always to pray. Now these prayers could have been spontaneous prayers, but they were also set prayers that they were learned in the synagogue worship of the day. The songs that we sing here together in worship, many of them are prayers to God. They are giving you words of faith that you may sing and pray back to God. These are the things that the early believers in Jesus devoted themselves to, making sure that these things were a part of their daily life, no matter what difficulty or obstacle or hindrance. And we today can learn from that kind of devotion for how easily do we ourselves keep, uh, are kept from everything uh, in the world that it keeps us from enjoying the benefits that God gives us? How important is that fellowship of togetherness of believers to us? Many congregations have a covenant with one another that they will not neglect the gathering together on the Lord's Day unless providentially hindered. That's the kind of devotion that characterizes a people moved by God. That's the kind of devotion that marks a church where the power of God is present. So question, what moved these followers of Jesus and these 3,000 souls that were saved to devote themselves to these things? It wasn't just a knowledge of what God had done, but it was a holy fear of God that came upon them. Look at verse 43. It says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now that word translated as awe is the word phobos. Think phobia. It's the word fear. This fear that came upon every soul is linked together with the wonders and signs performed by the apostles. This fear is not something that the people generated and produced themselves. This fear is something that came upon them. So where did this fear come from? This fear came from God as an outworking of the wonders and signs that the apostles performed. And the apostles did not perform these wonders and signs in their own strength or power, but in the power of the Holy Spirit that had come upon them. This was all God working through them. These wonders and signs in this fear is all a gift from God. So what does it mean then, church, to fear God? The fear of God is a word that means to have a reverential awe and respect for God. It's the kind of 
reverence with which we approach God in worship. But that word fear in the Bible, you need to take note of this, never does completely lose its sense of terror. The fear of God maintains an awareness of God's indescribable nature, His unsearchable wisdom, His magnificent power, and even the fierceness of His wrath. The fear of God can be likened to visiting a lion's exhibit at a zoo. You stand in awe, in fear of that mighty beast, and feel safe enough to approach its cage. But yet there is still a present terror, a fear that prevents you from getting into the cage with that lion. All reverence and terror describe your fear of that lion. And so it is that all reverence and terror describe our fear of God. Such fear, verse 43 says, came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Fear moved God's people toward the faithful devotion of verse 42 and moved them to persist in the faith even through difficulty. It is a holy fear of God that breathes life into faith. Remember James chapter 2 verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It's very possible to have a faith that is dead. But faith that is alive, a faith that works, a faith that characterizes a church on mission is faith that is moved by a holy fear of reverence and awe and even terror of God. As the apostles performed many signs and wonders, these signs and wonders confirmed the word that they were teaching to which the converts and followers of Jesus devoted themselves to. So you never see a separation of word and works, of word and spirit. Often with this passage of Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, it's taught in this way to the church. If the early church did these things, then the church today should do these things. So church, do this, do this, and do this. If I were to teach you in that way this morning, it wouldn't move you much. You would agree that we should do these things, but it wouldn't move you to do them if you don't desire to do them already. Instruction and teaching alone will not resurrect a dead faith, but instruction and a holy fear will. When my kids play together, the noise starts to increase. It gets a little bit louder and louder. It doesn't move me to jump out of my seat and see what's going on. But when I hear a thud and a crash and a scream, a fear takes hold that something serious has happened, and I spring out of my chair determined to get to them as quickly as possible, no matter the cost. Listen to this. The church does not need more teaching. The church needs more fearing. The church needs God through His Holy Spirit to instill in us a healthy fear of God that shakes us to the core and moves us quickly into mission. And this can only come from God. 
So what do we do? We pray. We pray that God would increase our faith. We pray that God would awaken us with an awareness of His presence and an urgency of the hour and the weight of eternity. The fear of God is a product of our humanity encountering divinity, of our mortality encountering immortality. And the more we know God, the more God places eternity in our hearts and the more of a healthy and holy fear we have of God and the more we are compelled to move in our devotion for the things of God, our fervency in prayer and our compassion and urgency for winning souls for Jesus. The fear of God is a fear that comes from God by His Holy Spirit. And the fear of God that comes from God not only compels movement, but it empowers movement. The fear of God is like the fuel that powers the engine of God's mission in the world. And the engine of God's mission in the world is His church. Proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. Let me remind you what Paul said of the Thessalonian believers. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, listen to this. He says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction. You see the tone of fear there. The Holy Spirit of God indwells us with a holy fear of God. That fear first fuels a sincere devotion to the things of God. That fuel, that fear is a result of the wondrous workings of God, confirming His word. And lastly, this fear fuels growth and expansion of the Lord's church. Look with me in verse 44. It says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Now that little phrase, all who believe, that qualifier is important for all that follows. These actions that will be described are not performed by all people, but only by all who believed. These are the things that Christians do together. It is the predisposition of human beings not to believe the testimony of Jesus. Apart from the intervention of God by His Word and Spirit, we don't seek after God or receive His truth. We don't want to live by faith, but only by what we can see and only by what we can control. We're naturally selfish and stingy, not caring for the needs of others. We worship ourselves and set up our own towers and kingdoms to make ourselves God. But the grace of Jesus changes all of that. The grace of God brings all believers together, not around ourselves, but in intimate fellowship with all things in common because we have Jesus in common. We have the Spirit in common. Verse 45, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. An ownership transaction occurs when a person becomes a follower of Jesus. Think of it this way. When you buy a car, 
you have to transfer the title of ownership from the name of the previous owner into your name. With that transfer of title, there is a transfer of names on that title and a transfer of ownership of that car. The same is true of the followers of Jesus when it relates to possessions and belongings. When a person becomes a follower of Jesus, that person is no longer his or her own. That person has been bought with a price. The price of the blood of the Son of God poured out for sin. We become owned by the Lord and take on His name. We become a Christian. And in that transaction of new birth, there is a transference of ownership that takes place. The title to everything that you once owned or possessed is transferred into the name of a new owner. The name of the one who gave you his name. Jesus. And you no longer concern yourself with possessions because in Jesus, every spiritual blessing is yours in heavenly places. So let me ask you, should we go at this moment and sell all of our possessions and give to those who have need? I think the question that the scriptures ask is would you? Would you, if God supplied you provision that you could meet the need of a fellow brother or sister in the Lord? Would you? If you view yourself as the owner of anything, you need to ask not what things you own, but instead, who owns you? Because Jesus is not your owner or your Lord. Because when we become followers of Jesus, we no longer own, we steward. For what things do we have that have not first come from above? James 1 verse 17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness nor shadow due to change. The believers were so moved by a holy fear of God that nothing they owned was off the table for meeting the needs of others as they had need. And a text like this is helpful for reproving a self-seeking, stingy, independent, individualistic Christianity of which there is no such thing. What the early believers do in Jesus, they do selflessly, generously, and together in unity in the Lord. Look with me. Lastly, verses 45 through 47, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Day by day, as they are devoted to the things of the Lord, day by day, the Lord is adding to their number. The followers of Jesus were now living in light of eternity. That's what the fear of God gives for us. 
Eternity was not a distant afterthought for them. It was a present reality. And if you do not live in light of eternity now, you will not experience eternal life later. The people of God are called to live as those who will live with God both now and forever. We will not do later what we are not willing to do now. One of the common rejections of coming to faith in Jesus is that they'll get around to it later. They'll live like they want to now and wait until they are old or sick or on their deathbed and then they'll get right with God. No, you won't. For you will not be willing to do at some time later what you are not willing to do in the moment that God has given you, the only moment God has promised you now. And that's why the scriptures exhort the people, do not delay the day of your salvation. Now is the appointed time. Now is the day. I want you to see that the devotion of the followers of Jesus was such that it was not merely a preparation for eternity, but a realization that eternity was present now in the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus. Verse 46 says, Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. That word generous speaks of a simplicity, a humility. I have all I need in Jesus. I'm not bogged down with the complexities of heart and life. So what I do have, I give generously in Jesus' name. Generosity is a cure for materialism. Generosity produces a simplicity in life and heart. It's a reflection of the work of God because God himself was generous because he so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And this is the way of being a witness for Jesus. This is the way that the devotion in life was lived out together, verse 47, in praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The Holy Spirit brought a holy fear of God upon the believers so that they were moved on mission in power. And Jesus, who is the subject of the book of Acts, the Lord is the one adding to the number of those being saved, adding to the church daily. And so in conclusion, I want you to know that the Lord is still adding to his church. He has not stopped since that day. And he desires to add every one of you who hears these words. Apart from Jesus, you will never understand what it means to fear God with an awe and reverence. You will only know what it means to fear God in the sense of terror. Because for you, God is not Father, but God is Judge. And His day of judgment is coming in which He will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ. And that day is coming soon. But the way of salvation is simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. Repent and believe. Jesus. Turn from your sins. 
believe in Jesus, who took your place and died the death you deserve so you wouldn't have to, who was buried and raised in power and will raise you too in power in him. Jesus will change you. He will give you a new birth and eternal life now and a new holy fear of God for worship in which the unapproachable becomes approachable. You can know the holy fear of God that the Spirit gives that says, how can we not speak of the things that we have seen and heard? How can we not live on mission for the Lord? Now church, let me exhort you to pray with such a reverence and awe and even terror of the living God. He is mighty to save. He is powerful, but he is also approachable. And the way that we approach God is through prayer. So pray that God would give us an urgency of the moment and empower us to live by the same holy fear as the early believers so that we might rightly steward God's present gifts both for his present and future glory. Let us pray that God would revive a devotion among us that we would not neglect the teaching of God's word and the meeting together and the fellowship the breaking of bread and the prayers. Let us pray that God would bind us together in intimate fellowship and in unity, knowing that in the power of the Spirit, nothing is impossible for the church of Jesus Christ. And let us pray that God would add to our number daily those who are being saved.